a Podcast One production. Welcome to The Alternative Truth, a series where we debunk the myths and spin on health and wellbeing. Hi, my name's Mailing Dory, a lifestyle curious medical doctor, public health expert, and strategist. One thing I've learned is that what we think is right when it comes to health often isn't. So I've set out to talk with some of the world's most esteemed medical experts and frontline wellbeing innovators to find out the alternative truth. Some say wars will be fought over today's topic. We are, of course, speaking about something that most of us in the developed world take for granted and assume is safe. Second, probably only to air, it's fundamental to life. That is, of course, water. In a world awash with calorific drinks, most recognise water as a better alternative to juice, soda, or certainly Chardonnay. Most of us would agree that drinking tap water is far better than fetching water by hand from a well or collecting city rain. That said, there is not insignificant number of people who suggest our tap water is contaminated by pharmaceutical residue, chemicals, microplastics, and fertiliser runoff. To find out more, we sit down with two experts from the field, Associate Professor Matt Hopcraft, leading Australian dentist and public health advocate, and then we're joined by a return guest, Professor Mark Cohen, a pioneer of wellness in integrative medicine and more recently, founder of The Beautiful Water Company. Our first guest, Associate Professor Matt Hopcraft, is a current CEO of the Australian Dental Association Victoria branch. In his career to date, Matt has served as a dental officer in the Australian Army, a dentist in public and private practice, and in a number of leadership roles, including Honorary Clinical Associate Professor at the University of Melbourne's Dental School, President of the Victorian Dental Association, and Co-Director of Sugar-Free Smiles, an organisation raising awareness about the health impacts of high-sugar diets. Matt's been widely cited in the media on matters related to dental health. Fun fact, in 2015, he graced Australia's television as a contestant of television cooking program MasterChef Australia. Associate Professor Matt Hopcraft, welcome to The Alternative Truth. Thanks for having me, May. I want to launch out by asking you a general question. Um, In your capacity as the CEO of the Australian Dental Association, if I've got that correct, what, in Victoria. In Victoria. <laughs> what do you observe about people's perception around tap water safety? It's, a, it's an interesting one. I think most people are probably pretty ambivalent. I think most people seem to be quite comfortable that the water that comes out of their tap is is good and drinkable, albeit, you know, we've seen a huge explosion in recent times of people drinking bottled water. Um, but there's a, there's a core group, a very small but core group of people who are very passionately concerned about the water um, and particularly around this issue of water fluoridation. So, you know, there are people that, that really strongly believe that, that the tap water that we have in most of Australia is not safe because of water fluoridation. Um, but I think for the, for the vast majority of people out there, that's not really an issue that's on their radar unless they're living in an area, um, as we've seen over the last you know decade or so in parts of New South Wales, particularly in Queensland, where communities are looking at introducing water fluoridation, it does become a very hot topic there. But I, I suspect if you stop the average person in the street in places like Melbourne or Sydney, it wouldn't, wouldn't really raise an issue with them. So from a technical perspective, what exactly defines safe drinking water? 
I, I mean, I guess there's, there's a lot that kind of goes into safe drinking water. And if we look at, at water in general, um, you know, there's a whole lot of issues that, that um, water authorities around the country would be looking at in terms of different levels of, of um, uh, minerals or, or other additives that, that might be in the water that they would be concerned about, but also around, um, you know, bacteria, for example. So making water safe to drink is, is a, a key um, function of those, those water authorities. Um, from a, from a water fluoridation perspective, um, what we what we see in most of Australia is is water that's fluoridated at, at one part per million. Um, so one part of fluoride per one million parts of water is a very small amount of, of fluoride that's added to water. Um, and they're very sophisticated processes to ensure that. Um, that level of fluoride remains very, very constant so that there is no safety issues. Take us, to, I guess, to the decision where, because um, this, you know, fluoride in water is not ubiquitous worldwide. What, what, what occurred in Australia's sort of public health history to, to arrive at the decision that fluoride should be injected into our public water supply? So a little, little detour through history. Um, and, and fluoride... As, as, a, as a beneficial ad additive to water was discovered in the USA in the sort of the 1940s. So there was some communities or in, and if you go back to that, that era, um, tooth decay was, was wildly prevalent. Um, and, you know, most people had tooth decay and most people had quite extensive tooth decay. Tooth loss in early adulthood was, was very, very common. Um, and there was areas of, of America where it was found that um, there were communities that just had no or very little decay right next to communities that had significant decay. And some of the, the really early um, dental epidemiologists at the time spent a lot of time looking at why that was. And what they eventually came to was investigating the water supplies. And they found that in those communities with um, very little levels of decay, the fluoride levels in the water occurring naturally were, were quite high. That led to some, some research of saying, well, can we actually artificially adjust the level of fluoride in the water supply? And so they went to some, um, some other parts of America and they started a, a large-scale study of um, a couple of townships, one that they fluoridated and one that they kept unfluoridated. They actually had to stop the study after about six years because the impact was so dramatic. The kids in the fluoridated communities' tooth decay rates dropped so dramatically that they thought it was unethical to withhold that benefit from the other community. So that was sort of the, the evidence and the impetus for starting around this area of water fluoridation. Um, in Australia... And, we introduced water fluoridation um, in the 1950s. And again, a little bit of Australian history, at both World War I and World War II, one of the leading causes for young men not being found to be fit to go off to war for Australia was actually dental problems. Um, so dental problems were so significant at the time um, that you know a lot of people had to have significant dental work, and which in invariably involved taking a lot of teeth out. Um, before they could be sent off to, to war. And then that caused a whole lot of other problems around not having teeth and not being able to eat adequately and nutrition and those sorts of things. Um, and so there was a big push after World War II around how do we improve um, the, the oral health of, of our community. Uh, and this emerging evidence out of the United States was showing that, that water fluoridation was one way of doing that. So we started in, in Beaconsfield in Tasmania um, and then gradually water fluoridation spread through Sydney in 1968 um, and Adelaide in, I think, about 1968. 
wasn't until 1977 in Melbourne, so it, it took a lot of time um, in Melbourne. And then in Brisbane, it uh, wasn't until 2008 that they fluoridated the water supply there. Now, this might be just um, kind of too novel to address, but I'm curious as to why places like Byron Bay, which are iconic to the wellbeing community, have resisted water fluoridation if it's a national agenda. Well, it. I mean, it's it's a national agenda, and it's and it's not a national agenda, and it, and this is one of the things again that makes it, it kind of interesting about how it's happened around around the country because different states, it's it's a state um, responsibility, not a federal responsibility, and different states have different levels of legislation. So, um, you know, in some states they leave it up to a local council area, and other states it, it can be more effectively mandated um, at a state level or directed at a state level. And so one of the things that we do see in New South Wales is, is that issue where it is very much up to a, a local council to decide. Um, and if you're in a small community where local councillors are making the decisions, then they're going to be very strongly influenced by the people living in that community. Um, and it's it's one of the problems, I think, in in devolving the decision-making down to, to that level um, where, where you don't have necessarily people with a lot of health expertise making decisions about community health and public health measures and potentially being more influenced by, you know, what the views of, of um, local people are. Now, one of the arguments that's put forward around not artificially inserting fluoride into the water is the fact that the fluoride that's used is an agricultural runoff product, like it's it's called hydrofluorosilicic acid, and it's different to naturally occurring calcium fluoride. How would you address that claim that the the ag runoff, so I understand it comes from organic fertilizers, organophosphate fertilizers, and it's kind of I assume bought by Melbourne Water and, or whatever your municipality is and pumped in. Yeah, so, I mean, again, we, we go back to some chemistry. Um, and fluoride fluoride's one of the most abundant elements in the, in the Earth's crust. Um, and b- because water is in contact with, with rocks in, in groundwater, um, fluoride that's naturally occurring in rocks is in a, in a form called calcium fluoride. And when water comes in contact with those rocks for an extended period of time, um, the fluoride dissolves out of the rock and into the water supply. And so that's how we get naturally occurring fluoride. And there's lots of places around the world um, that have naturally occurring fluoride. There's places in Victoria, places like um, Port Ferry and Portland have um, fluoride naturally occurring in their water supply at about one part per million. And that fluoride ion um, that was bound up together with calcium um, leaches out and the water has fluoride in it, a fluoride ion. Um, in the fertiliser industry, um, they're trying to get phosphate out of the rocks. So there's a whole process of trying to extract the phosphate out of the rocks for, for, for um, the, the fertiliser industry. Um, and a byproduct of that, because this calcium and fluoride is found in the rocks, um, is that the fluoride comes out and there's a process of extracting that. Um, and so it, it comes and there's a, there's a few different forms that are used um, in, in artificial water fluoridation. So sometimes it's sodium fluoride, sometimes it's sodium silico fluoride, and sometimes it's the hydrofluorosilic acid um, that are all, you know, p- potentially coming from, from, from this sort of industry. But again, you go through the chemistry, you put that in the water and the fluoride ion 
separates out, dissolves in the water, dissociates, and you're left with the fluoride ion. So when that water gets down the tap um, from the water treatment plant and into your house and into your glass, it's a fluoride ion. And it doesn't matter. Your body doesn't know where it's come from. Um, it doesn't know that it's naturally leached out of the rock or that it's part of a, a, a process of um, making fertiliser. Um, it's just a fluoride ion. And it's, and it's no more or less safe because it's come directly from a rock or because it was extracted from that rock through a, a manufacturing process to make some phosphate. How does it actually work? Does fluoride, as you drink it, like reinforce the teeth? That's a, it's a really good question. You get, you, we're getting into all of, the, all of the fun stuff here. And, and, I mean, if we take a step back from there as to why, why we need it in the first place, one in three Australian kids have tooth decay in their baby teeth by the age of five to six. And two in five Australian kids have tooth decay in their adult teeth Gross. by the age of 12 to 14. So tooth decay is, is, is almost the most common disease affecting our children. Um, something like 30,000 preventable hospitalizations in children across Australia each year. It's the leading cause of preventable hospitalization in children. And probably nine in 10 adults experience tooth decay through, through their lifetime. And there are you know, significant financial costs and, and other health impacts from tooth decay. So it's, it's, it's not an insignificant disease that we're trying to prevent. And prevent is the important part. It's a preventable disease. And if we think about why do we get tooth decay, the, the enamel, the outer part of the tooth is, is quite hard. Um, but when we eat food and uh, the food particularly with, contains sugars and, and other carbohydrates, the, the bacteria that live in the plaque on our teeth turn that sugar into acid and it dissolves away the outer surface of the tooth. Um, we call that demineralization. But fortunately, when we um, drink fluoridated water, we brush our teeth with fluoridated toothpaste, our saliva helps to protect that tooth and helps to put the mineral back in. It remineralizes that tooth. So our tooth is sort of in this constant battle of being attacked by acids from the sugar in our foods and then being rebuilt again by fluoride and our, and our saliva predominantly. Um, but if we eat too much, too frequently sugary foods and drinks, eventually enough of that tooth surface dissolves away and the whole tooth collapses and you have a cavity and then you need to go and see the, the dentist for a filling. So that's what we're trying to stop. Fluoride works by helping to push mineral back into the tooth surface. So our tooth surface is mostly calcium and phosphate, um, but fluoride can go in there and help to rebuild the tooth. Uh, and if we're using fluoride toothpaste that usually has you know 1,500 parts per million, so 1,500 times as much as what's in um, water, um, then that helps to push a lot of uh, fluoride and calcium back into the into the tooth and rebuild it. But if you're constantly drinking water through the day, then you're getting little amounts of fluoride that help to to drive that process as well. And then some of that fluoride we ingest, and it, we get this argument: well, you know, if it, if it works on the surface of the tooth. Why do I have to drink it? Um, isn't drinking it bad? But you drink the water, your body absorbs some of that fluoride, and then that comes back out again in the saliva in minute quantities, but we only need minute quantities at the tooth surface anyway. And then that helps additionally um, along the way. So it's, it's about having a little bit of fluoride always there to help reverse that tooth decay process. Got it. Curly question, though. If we took out sugar, if we just banned it, would we need fluoride? No. Um, 
So Ooh, there's the answer. Tooth decay, so tooth decay is a disease predominantly of excess sugar consumption. And the most effective way in my mind to prevent tooth decay is to reduce as much as you can the amount of sugar that you have. And if you take that part out of the equation, then we don't need to add something because fluoride is, is really intervening. Fluoride helps to strengthen the tooth surface and make it more resistant to tooth decay. So that's a good thing. But usually it's working by intervening when the disease has already started. So you're already eating sugar, the tooth surface is already starting to dissolve and the fluoride's trying to, to fight back against that process. So, you know, in someone who is not eating any sugar at all, um, which is very rare these days, unfortunately, yeah. um, those people um, don't have tooth decay and fluoride will, have be, will have be of no benefit to them, but also will be of no harm to them either. Should we tax sugar? We're getting off topic here, but I'm just curious. Should we ta- should we tax sugar to pay for dentists? I think I think we should I think we should tax um, sugary drinks, um, and not not to pay for dentists necessarily. I mean, I think that definitely we need um, more funding put into public dental services, but I think some of that money needs to. And you think about how sugar impacts on our overall health and diabetes and obesity and all sorts of other things. I think if there was a tax on sugary drinks, you would want to be looking at how that money would be spent across a range of health problems, um, but also to fund you know, health promotion campaigns, um, things that, that actually then encourage people to reduce their sugar consumption. I mean, where we, want to, where we obviously want to get to in, in any kind of public health area is prevention, not treatment. So um, ideally, we would want to be putting that money raised into things that help to prevent the problem in the first place, not treat the outcomes of the disease at the other end. And, you know, what we've seen in, in tobacco with with taxes on, um, on tobacco products is that it does help not only to, to raise money to put into those sorts of campaigns, but it does have an impact on people's behaviours. It does change their behaviour as well. So I think it, a tax on sugary drinks sends a signal to people um, that sugary drinks aren't healthy, that helps to change behaviour, it makes it more expensive, so some people will change their behaviour and, and drink less as a consequence. And for those who continue to do that, um, you know, think of it as a health levy rather than a, a tax, um, it creates some funding to go towards um, improving health in the community in some way, shape or form. I see what you did just then. <laughs> <laughs> um, Good. I have. I, I sort of want to just round out our conversation here by touching on a topic that comes up, you know, when it when it comes to tap water too. Given that we now have quite an industrialized system, and that is that beyond say what is actively added, we we have things like pharmaceuticals, pesticides, contraceptives, microplastics, which can be found, I guess, in water in general as far as Antarctica, and so they. They are going to be existing in our urban city water supply. Is that a concern? Do you think the general public should be concerned about this from you know from your expert perspective? We're probably stretching on my expert perspective on on some of those issues. Um, but I mean, of, of course, we should always be concerned about about what's in our in our water, if, if it, and and of anything in our in our food supply. Um, you know, anything that that we put in our bodies, we want to be as as healthy as possible. Um, and there's no doubt that the the more industrialized we've become, there there is greater risk of um, all sorts of things. And you know, the um, 
plastic type particles, I think, is 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 an area that people do need to be concerned about. Equally, um, you know, if, if people are concerned about what's in the water that's coming out of their tap, we also need to look at you know what what impact is there of bottled water, for example. So water that sits in already in encased in plastic, uh, and people seem to be quite comfortable drinking that. Um, and so, really, that gets us back to that 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 stage of you know who's looking after our water supply um, and what control mechanisms do we have in place there in terms of quality control of the water. I think it's it's an area of research that that will continue to, to grow over time as, as we become more aware of where some of these problems might be. Um, but ensuring that we have safe, um, healthy, drinkable water, I think is really critical for any community. So to kind of give people a take-home point, I want to kind of pose a hypothetical situation in that assuming you're not worried about packaging, assuming budget is absolutely no constraint, are we better off drinking Never Fail or Perrier or San Pellegrino, Carpi Water, if 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 not if those things weren't a barrier? No, I, I, I don't think so. I, I think that, that- here in Australia, the, the quality of our tap water, and it is something that is that is looked at um, all of the time by by the relevant health departments. The quality of our tap water is excellent, um, and so from from a purely health perspective, um, the the water is safe to drink. Um, there is an additional benefit from a dental perspective around tap water that has fluoride in it. Um, that you don't get from bottled water. And then, you know, the, the, the other bit, I guess, that we haven't touched on is the environmental cost. So, um, you know, in, in any of those bottled waters, you think about the environmental waste that that is inherent in the packaging, the bottling, um, and the processing of effectively taking water and you know, shipping it around the, the the country or around the world for some of those waters that you that you talked about, um, to to get something that is essentially the same as what comes out of a tap. Um, so I, you know, I think that that people really do need to look at, um, you know, reverting back to to tap water. One of the the things that that I was involved with a little while ago here in in Victoria was in, in working with Vic Health and and trying to ensure that there was a good supply of um, freely available water to refill your bottles around around Melbourne. Um, and we've seen a growth in that over time. So, you know, um, free water fountains and, and refill stations at sporting venues, for example, or in shopping centres now, um, and really trying to push people back towards drinking of the water that is, that is free um, and readily or should be readily available, um, both from a health perspective, but also from an environmental perspective as well. Matt, thank you so much for making the time. You've given us a very comprehensive overview and I guess an injection of wisdom on the subject of of, of water. You've calmed down the, the discussion. So, um, yeah, I guess if anyone wants to find you, they can find you at the Victorian branch of the Australian Dental Association. Thanks, mate. It's been great talking to you. Thinking back on the conversation with Matt... There's no question that if your choice is between bad teeth, no teeth and tap water, the answer is tap water every time. And also for the vast majority of people who can't or won't give up sugar and carbohydrates, drinking fluoridated water is probably a small compensation in view of everything else. Still, my chat with Matt generated a few questions, namely, 
what exactly is traded off in treating and fluoridating water as opposed to better funding dentists? What do we know about the intergenerational population effects of this kind of water treatment? How can we dimension not the things that get inserted into tap water, but the things that aren't filtered out? And if you want to, can you take the fluoride out of treated water? Let's see what our next guest has to say, Professor Mark Cohen. Mark is a medical doctor, university professor and wellness trailblazer who returns today given his specific passion and expertise around water. He spent more than 30 years practising and researching holistic health and he's the kind of resume that would make most people want to take a lie down. He's published more than 100 peer-reviewed papers, many books and technical texts on wellness and natural medicine. He's a registered GP with degrees in physiology and psychological medicine, as well as two PhDs in Chinese medicine and biomedical engineering. He's the founder of the Extreme Wellness Institute, co-founder of Bathe the World Foundation, and more recently, the Beautiful Water Company. Professor Mark Cohen, welcome back to The Alternative Truth. Well, thank you, mate. It's great to be with you again. I thought I'd start by asking you to give us some reflections on what you observe about people's relationship with water, tap water or otherwise. Well, I think people take water for granted um, <clears throat> and don't realise that water is the most wonderful and most mysterious substance in the universe. And that in terms of our bodies, we're you know, two-thirds water by volume or by mass, but if you count our molecules, we're 99.9% water if you count our molecules. So water is literally what we're made of. It's the infrastructure for our bodies. It, it holds consciousness. And um, most people think of it as a, just a commodity that you know, comes through your tap. They don't really think where it comes from. Um, don't think a lot about what's in it or what's not in it. Um, and you know, while some people think about, oh, yeah, I have to filter my, you know, my drinking water so I have filters on their drinking taps, they don't consider that the water that they come in and they bathe in is probably more important than their drinking water. So I think um, there's a big awakening about water on planet Earth right now because the whole world is in a water crisis. Um, and while water comes out of our tap, you know, and it's a super cheap commodity, you know, it's, um, you know, you pay it for a, a thousand litres of water, you pay, you know, a, a few cents um, per megalitre as municipal water, but people will buy um, plastic bottled water for a few dollars for a litre. And they don't realise that, you know, companies that make plastic water bottles don't make water, they make plastic. And that there are 500 billion plastic water bottles made every year. That's a million a minute, 20,000 20, per second plastic water bottles are produced. And most of them end up in landfill. And it's an environmental catastrophe, it's a financial catastrophe, and it's not necessarily high-quality water. In fact, it could actually be much, much worse for you. So I think we're really um, at a, a turning point of how we need to relate to water, and that's both as individuals and as communities and as a planet, because water is the most critical um, infrastructure, most critical um, element and essential element for life. And um, currently the way we, we manage water globally and individually has a lot to be improved on. I think it would be fair to say, reflecting on what you've just sort of laid out, that most most people in the West would probably think their tap water is pretty safe and that it's okay to drink. They might prefer the taste of bottled water or enjoy sparkling water. They bathe in their tap water. Do you think that's 
us being asleep at the wheel to an extent? Yes, I think when you, when you think about safety, I think you have to think about from whose perspective. Now, our tap water, I mean, municipal water um, comes, you know, from a public health perspective. And since the First World War, just after the First World War, it's had chlorine added to it. And that's become a standard globally because um, they wanted to control outbreaks of cholera and typhoid. And certainly water can be the, the greatest blessing, but it can be a, a huge curse because water carries toxicity, it carries pathogens, and you get an infectious outbreak and you can have large populations suffering. And, and the, the ones that were most, most worried about in the early 1900s were cholera and typhoid, which are you know, fecal oral root um, um, water transmissible diseases. So they started using um, chlorine because chlorine is one of the most toxic substances we know of. I mean, chlorine, the reason why they use chlorine is it's so toxic that even at a few parts per million, it'll kill bacteria at the, at the point when it comes out of your tap. And that's great from a public health perspective to keep safety for public health epidemics. But it's known, for example, well, it, it has become known that um, one, that chlorinated water will cause birth defects, it will cause bladder cancer um, and other you know, irritations to mucous membranes and to hair and skin and um, you know, respiratory conditions. But also um, it's now known that bacteria are our friends. We don't need to wage war on bacteria and that our microbiome, m most of the genetic material in our body is from bacteria that is part of who we are. And it's only just been talked about last year, this is quite recent information, that um, our skin is one of the biggest surface areas for interacting with bacteria. So when, you know, when I went to medical school 30 years ago, more than 30 years ago now, um, you know, we were taught the skin had a surface area of 1.8 square metres, which is about you know, the surface area of a single bed. And we were told that the gut had a much bigger surface area because the gut has these villi, these little fingers that stick out and increase the surface area. And that interacts with all the bacteria that's in our gut. And there's all this research, you know, quite new research still on, you know, the, the microbiome in our gut. But then last year, some clever anatomists, they figured out, well, the skin has all these inverted villi. Every time you have a hair follicle or a sweat gland or a sebaceous gland, the, the epithelium dips down and dips back up again. And there are a couple of million of these glands. So if you count that surface area of the epithelium, your skin has a surface area of 30 square metres, which is comparable to the gut. And it's in these little um, crevices where oils are secreted. And these oils are naturally secreted to lubricate your skin, to protect your skin from the sun damage, to protect your skin from drying out, to feed the good bacteria on your skin and protect your skin from pathogens, and really to stop your skin from ageing and wrinkling and, and, and being damaged prematurely. And if you're bathing in chlorinated water, you're oxidizing these oils, you're stripping them away. You're also changing the microflora of your skin and you're changing the bacteria. I mean, you're not sterilizing your skin, but you're certainly changing these good bacteria and creating bacteria that more, have more antibiotic resistance and are more likely to be pathogenic. So you're drying out your skin, you're prematurely aging your skin, and you're changing the bacterial composition of your skin just by bathing in water. And then what they've also realized is that um, with chlorine, um, chlorine is very volatile. And if you're bathing, um, generally you bathe in water that's more than 25 degrees. Usually it's 35 or 40, you know, 38 degrees. And once water's over about 25 degrees, chlorine and its volatile disinfection byproducts, and these are things like chloroform 
and trihalomethanes, and you know, they're really quite toxic products, they become volatile. They go into the air and you breathe them in. And they also absorb directly through your skin um, when your pores are open and your skin is quite porous to these compounds. So, And they've done studies where they got people to drink chlorinated water and measured the chloroform and trihalomethanes in their blood. And it didn't really appear because most of it got filtered out by the liver. Um, but then they had people bathe in chlorinated water and they either bathe them in water and they make them breathe fresh air or they bathe them in water where their skin wasn't touching the water, but they breathed the air from the, the, um, the, the bathing water. And they found that either through the skin or through your lungs, you get a massive dose of chlorine and um, chloroform and trihalomethanes into your blood and it bypasses the liver. So this is actually affecting your whole, all your internal organs, having this big toxic dose just from bathing. And I think that wasn't appreciated how, and it's still not appreciated. There's still not a lot of good research to say, what is the effect of this chlorine, which is designed to kill bacteria on the good bacteria, both in our gut and on our skin. And I think, um, I mean, there was, there was a recent paper at the start of, um, I think it was the start of last year, which implicated chlorinated tap water for most of the chronic conditions that we have in the Western world because most of those conditions are related to inflammation and gut dysbiosis. Well, you were, you've just touched on something I wanted to clarify for everyone listening, which is, are you saying that tap water is better than having cholera? It's marginally safe to drink, but bathing in tap water is not safe. Well, I'm not so, I mean, the, the issue about safety is, I mean, what are you, safe, safe from what? So tap water is generally safe from cholera and typhoid and other epidemics. Mind you, I think it was a month ago, I'm in Melbourne, and a month ago, you know, we were given in my, I mean, sort of, sort of southeast, um, there were 250,000 homes that were told we have to boil our water for three days because the water treatment plant wasn't working and, you know, our water wasn't safe. Um, but then what the, the authorities call safe means it's safe from a public health outbreak perspective. It doesn't mean it's safe from an individual perspective on your particular health and your particular biome. Um, Let's talk about that. Let's talk about definitions of safety because you've touched on chlorine. Yep. Many people also mention fluoride. Yep. And I, I'm just wondering, to your knowledge, is there anything else that's injected into municipal water? Well, so, so for example, the, the public health authorities, they say, we're going to put poison in your water to make it safe for you. What do you mean by and poison? Let's just unpack that. Well, chlorine is poison. There's no okay. two way. I mean, it says it on the bottle. You look at any bottle of chlorine or bleach, it says this is poison. If you ingest it, go to the hospital. Um, so the re And the reason why they use it is it's so poisonous, it'll kill bacteria in 0.2 to 0.6 parts per million. So for the, for the mother that's taking her kids to the local pool, mm -hmm. should she not do that? Well, um, depending on the child. So... Um, I mean, swimming's fantastic. You know, it's great for exercise. It's great for um, self-confidence. It's great for coordination. However, if you have an indoor pool and the air is probably more toxic than the water and the hotter the water, the more toxic it will be because the more volatile compounds. So if you have a child with asthma or respiratory allergies or, you know, mucous membrane problems, um, you know, they can choke. They can, they can have, you know, severe respiratory irritation. And then, you know, their skin will change, you know, it will become more dry, their hair will get bleached. So it's, you know, swimming's fantastic, um, but if you're going to swim in a chlorinated pool, it's better to do it in the colder the water, the better. And outdoor. And doing it outdoor when there's good air circulation. Got it. So getting back to definitions of safety versus mm -hmm. health, what is 
I mean, one would have thought those two terms kind of intersect. What is safe and healthy in your definition? Well, so you want to get pathogens out of water. I mean, you don't yeah. want to be um, drinking and bathing in you know, pathogens. And there are pathogens naturally in water. So it's not just fecal oral pathogens. There's um, Negleria fowleri, an amoeba that is in the soil. When you say pathogens, go- you're talking about... Um- Microbes. Things that cause disease. Yeah. yeah. Microbial, so protozoa, you know, um, things like cryptosporidium and giardia and amoebas and E. coli, which is E. coli is actually the indicator organism. There is a pathogenic E. coli. Most E. coli is just, it's not harmful, but it's an indicator of fecal contamination. And if you have fecal contamination, then you have things like cryptosporidium and giardia and typhoid and cholera, but also um, potentially viruses, hepatitis A, hepatitis B, uh, well, not B so much, but. Um, you know, um, fecal oral pathogen, like hep A, for example. Um, so these are things that cause human disease that travel in water that you want to eliminate from water. And and nature naturally eliminates these from water. Um, I mean, one of the most basic ways is UV light. So the sunshine, sunshine and water will will eliminate these pathogens. Um, you know, water that gets filtered through the, the soil. And we're, we've actually done um, research on hot spring water and what I call the bathing biome. So this is the, the biome of bacteria that you bathe in. And even water that comes out of, the, out of hot springs, you know, 600 metres under the ground, isn't sterile. But it's been filtered through, you know, basalt and through the, through the rock and through sand, um, through paramagnetic rock. It's been sort of structured. And, and, and water is so complex. We're still just understanding the, the complexities of water. And there are 72 scientific anomalies that we don't understand about water. So this is, there's a whole lot of mystery there about how water can be structured and carry consciousness. But if you're just looking at um, the water that you're, say, you're going to swim in or you're going to bathe in. Or drink. That water, or, or drink. Um, one thing, you know, it, it has poison added to it. It has chlorine and, and um, fluoride, which are both toxic. Fluoride's a neurotoxin. Chlor- chlorine is a direct biological toxin. It'll kill people. It'll kill bacteria, depending on the dose. Um, but then what happens with chlorine, it will also... Um, leach out other toxic elements from the, the distribution system. So most of our water distribution system is quite old, you know, many, many much of it is over 100 years old. So there's all sorts of biofilm, there's, you know, there's still lead solders. What do you mean by biofilm? So biofilm is whenever there's turbulence in water, just like in your heart, you know, if there's turbulence, then bacteria can live in the low-pressure areas where there's not a lot of in the still parts and they build up mats of bacterial um, Life. That's so a this block is um, of bugs. Like, yeah. So this is like bugs that live on the linings of the pipes, and and the chlorine won't can't attack that because they form this sort of protective barrier that they're protected from the chlorine. So you get you have bacteria living in the pipes. You also have things like lead and heavy metals, and then you have all sorts of what they call emerging contaminants. And emerging contaminants are this. They're not regularly tested for, but it's a whole new class of contaminants that includes pesticides and pharmaceutical residues and solvents. And, and you think about the pumps that they're using for water system. They've all got lubricants in them and oils and stuff that, that go into the water. And there's runoff and there's heavy metals that leach in. Um, and there's all sorts of sediments. And there's stuff from the pipes themselves. So lead will leach out of the pipes. And um, so-called lead-free brass fittings are not lead-free. This is one of those, you know, false advertising claims. So lead-free brass fittings have lead in them, and if you expose them to chlorinated water, that chlorine will help leach that lead out and put it into the water. But um, for someone sitting at home in whatever suburb, when they turn on the tap, how do we know their water is safe or unsafe? Well, again, it depends what on how we you have define to do? that safety. Um, 
I mean, drinking water is better than not drinking water. So water is essential for life. So yeah, you need obviously. To, have, to have water. Um, now, then it's, so for example, we know that chlorinated water will increase your risk of bladder cancer. But, you know, they've done that public health, you know, calculation saying, you know, the risk of bladder cancer is offset by the risk of cholera and typhoid. That would be worse. So we'll, we'll sacrifice the long-term risk of bladder cancer to reduce the short-term risk of epidemic outbreaks. But if we boil our water, like if I go, right, I'm going to have a cold shower so I don't hmm? vaporise the chlorine, which might be unpleasant, but I avoid breathing it in. And then if I boil my water and then actively vaporize off the chlorine, yes. am I does great, that great. is that a solve? It's it's a partial solve. And in fact you can do that with your bath too. If you want to not bathe in chlorinated water, you just turn your bath on, make it really hot, put your fan on and wait for 20 minutes or half an hour till it cools down a little bit. And in that half an hour, because it's really hot, that will um vaporize most of the, the volatile compounds and the fan will blow them away. And then you can you can eliminate a lot of the chlorine um, just from letting it stand. And the hotter it's, it is when it stands, the more rapidly that will, will evaporate off. So there are ways to reduce the chlorine component um, just by boiling water, as you say, before you drink it or having hot water in your bath and letting that stand. But it's, it's sort of a, a, a truism that if you don't use a filter, you are a filter. And that you know, having a point of use filter um, is sort of a pre-filter for the, for your body because your your body, you know, your your kidneys literally are the filters of your body, but your body itself will will filter out all these toxic chemicals unless you filter them out first. I'm thinking about the person sort of who's listening to this with, you know, they're running their lifestyle through their head and they're like, right, well, I have a couple of Chardonnays a week and I, you know, eat a bit of junk food and. In terms of scale of impact of cleaning up our water in, intake and really having a best practice water consumption approach or a point of um, a point of consumption filter, what sort of scale of impact could that make on our health? Given that most humans do a few other yeah, less yeah. ideal well, things. Um, I don't think it's ever been measured. I mean, I've just started a company that's selling what I call beautiful water. And beautiful water, from my definition, is it's water that's been filtered, so it's had all the toxic elements removed. It's been structured, so the water actually has a, um, a structure to it, and we can go more into what that means, but structured water. It's been balanced in terms of the pH and the minerals in the water, and it's been blessed. It's got positive intention in that water, and it's not stagnant. The water's actually flowing, and the water itself is free. It's not a commodity. You don't have to pay for it. I mean, you, you buy the filter, but then the water can then be given out for free. And, you know, the water that comes out of these filters costs a fraction of a cent per litre compared to, you know, a plastic water bottle, which might cost a few dollars per litre. So I'm encouraging companies to buy these filters and give away that water for free and stop other people near them selling um, plastic water bottles. So that in terms of the best practice, you want water that's filtered, structured, balanced, blessed, and flowing freely. And when you say Filtered, you mean the fluorides out of it, the microbes out of it, the chlorines, um, what's taken well, out? In these filters, the all the microbial contaminants, so viruses, spores, you know, um, bacteria, um, they're all removed. Um, radioactive elements, heavy metals, pesticides, um, pharmaceuticals, chlorine, chlorine disinfection byproducts. Fluoride is really hard to remove at any decent flow rate. Flu to remove fluoride, you basically have to strip the water back to its bare essentials. So, like, say, for example, with a reverse osmosis or distillation. But reverse osmosis water, 
um, isn't necessarily healthy water because water is a, it becomes a very aggressive solvent. So reverse osmosis was actually designed for making laboratory water for using, you know, super pure water in labs. But water, that, that, and, and in fact, reverse osmosis water is not electrically conductive. It's actually an insulator. You need to put salt in water and it becomes such an aggressive solvent that it will leach um, solutes out of your body. So if you're going to have reverse osmosis water, you need to then rebuild that water with natural minerals because water naturally um, has minerals in it. And the, the other thing about reverse osmosis water is um, it, you don't get a very fast flow rate and it wastes maybe 80% of the water. So you only get 20% of the water that goes through as reverse osmosis water and then the rest gets um, discarded. So in, in a place like Australia where there's such a, um, a water deficit, you know, it's, it's quite wasteful. But if you're, but um, so the, you know, fluoride is really hard to remove and, and there's things like activated alumina and other media that can re re reduce fluoride, but they take a long contact time. So there's no fluoride removal process that I've found, and I've been researching this for a long time, that can, that can remove fluoride from a whole house filter. However, fluoride um, is neurotoxic and a, and a long-term you know, use. It will um, cause more brittle teeth and more brittle bones, and it calcifies and calcifies your pineal gland and actually is directly neurotoxic. And it, uses, it's been, it was used to sedate prisoners of war in the Second World War. They fluoridated their water to make them more docile. But in terms of, um, and so that's important for drinking, but in terms of the overall toxicity, certainly the most toxic compound in water is chlorine, chlorine and chloramines and the disinfection byproducts from chlorine, um, which affect, I mean, they're biocides. They're, they're put in there intentionally to kill living things. Um, and the living things that make up our body, um, you know, it's not good to wage war on them. I mean, they're our friends. We, we need to support our microbiome and support the, the health of our skin and the, and the natural oils in our skin. So, so people who have um, any sort of hair condition, skin condition, uh, respiratory condition, um, issues around their mucous membranes, you know, dry eyes, um, you know, dry skin, or um, premature aging or wrinkles and all of those sort of things, they can all, they can all, all be helped by um, reducing the chlorine component in your bathing water. Um, and then you've got all these other toxic elements such as, you know, the, these emerging contaminants and, you know, the pharmaceuticals and industrial solvents and, and other residues, which, which are all, all there. So it's, um, it's a really a can of worms once, once you open it up. I was just going to say that you've given us a tour de force through the topic of water and more pointedly... It's just scratching the surface. I know, those of us, you know, living in cities and urban areas... I think if people want to um, find more, they can always find you at um, Extreme Wellness and or the beautiful water company now. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure, mate. Um, I love talking about water. I can talk about this all day. After speaking to Associate Professor Matt Hopcraft and Professor Mark Cohen, I doubt I'm going to look at my next shower, cookie or glass of water the same. Whilst most of us, we're not going to keel over in any great hurry from drinking tap water. I am left asking whether what is happening is a death by a thousand cuts, or a thousand drops to be more accurate. There's no doubt that safe and clean water is essential to health. That said, has the time come to tighten the definition or raise the standard of safe? Should we all be boiling our drinking water for a start, avoiding the pool and swimming in the sea instead, banning plastic water bottles, and certainly considering a point of source filter? 
Whilst great quality filters are available for the whole house, they can cost a few thousand dollars. That said, if it means never buying another bottled water, better skin and hair, it's probably a good return on investment. Thanks again for joining us on The Alternative Truth. Alternative Truth is recorded in the studios of Podcast One Australia. Executive producer is Grant Tothill. The producer is Sarah Greenberg. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au.